1 Corinthians chapter 10, all of it. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things, as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, quote, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrifice to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but that the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Quote, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For, quote, the, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in the sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, 
even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. It's great to see everyone today. I, um, our sermon today is called A Warning from History. Now, I have to say, I really like history. I studied history at university. And for me, history is really important because we get to learn lots and lots about human nature. We get to learn about the mistakes of others. So hopefully we don't, mistake, we don't make those mistakes ourselves. And we get to learn lots of interesting facts. So today I decided to uh, use one of those on this day in history kind of things to find out what of significance happened on the 24th of July in history. Any Canadians here today? No, they're probably not here. They're at Lighthouse today, aren't they? Well, if you're Canadian, you might know that in 1534, Jacques Carter uh, travelled to Canada and suddenly claimed it for the French, stepped foot on it and said, this belongs to France. So if you're First Nation Canadian, I guess the, the, what we learn from that is don't allow the French into boats. Um, but far, of far more significance than that is in 1982. Does anybody know what happened in 1982 on this date? The Rocky theme song, Eye of the Tiger, got to number one and stayed there for six weeks. Now that's important because Rocky's just amazing. Anybody, anybody got a favourite Rocky movie? Rocky, number one. But yeah, I'd kind of go with number one or number three. Um, but anyway, you, can, you should go and binge watch them later if it gets too hot in the sun. Um, and we have all these things that we see in history, don't we? Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, writes to them a warning from history. And history is one of those things, isn't it? It can teach us something. When we look back, we can see how things have changed. Earlier this year, in January, I was on a Zoom call, which was a 30th anniversary for when a group of uh, my friends and I, we all did a, a Youth with a Mission discipleship training school. So that was six months of uh, full-time Christian work. Many of them went into full-time Christian ministry. So we decided to celebrate 30 years of that with a reunion. And we had to do it on Zoom because of all sorts of reasons. And one of the interesting things was seeing who wasn't there. And actually talking to people, it was really quite sobering to see many who started out following Jesus, those who even worked full-time in, Christian, in, in full-time Christian work, no longer following Jesus. The point is, we need to look back and we need to learn. And Paul writes to the Corinthians as he's encouraging them to push on. Last week we looked at the idea of the Christian life being like running a race. And Paul's concern for the Corinthian church is that it's begun to look far too much like the world around it. Not in terms of culture. Church should be accessible to the world around us in terms of culture. No, what he's talking about is that the morals, the values, the hearts, the belief system had come to far too closely reflect the culture 
around it. And Paul wants to correct that. He wants the church to reflect Jesus, not to reflect the culture around it. They had ceased to be distinct. They had ceased to place devotion to Jesus above all things. And that's really important because the same can happen to us. And the example Paul gives is, look at what happened to God's people, Israel. And to learn from that the dangers of falling away, the dangers of allowing our hearts to grow cold. You know, in this passage, and it's, um, we get the sense that Paul's saying it's not simply that you can have communion or baptism and that's it, you've arrived. No, we need to keep on keeping on and following Jesus. He made the point in earlier chapters that the Corinthians need to be careful about food that's offered to idols. And I'd encourage you listen, to listen to the talk that Pete did very helpfully a few weeks ago. And he says that they need to be careful about that to stop the weaker brother or sister from stumbling. But here, in this part of the passage, he says it's not just the weak that can stumble. Actually, it's those who become overconfident in themselves. That Actually, there's a danger for the strong that they can stumble. And he wants to challenge their self-confidence and to encourage their confidence to be in Jesus. You know, as I look back on my life, I've seen people who were far more spiritual than I was, far more devoted to Christ, far smarter, far more gifted, far more talented, far more diligent. And I've seen some of those people fall away. So brothers and sisters, today I want to ask you, please have an open heart. I speak this word today as a pastor who wants to love you and encourage you, but also to warn you. And that's the thing, the Bible is full of warnings, isn't it? Now, if I was, you know, I'm, I'm kind of really unspatially aware. I can bump into things, I can knock things over. And if I was gradually coming closer to the edge of this stage as I'm doing an illustration, you know, actually, if you could see me about to fall over the edge, what would you do? Get your, get your phone out and send it into You've Been Framed. Yes, James May at the back held up his phone. Because that's what we do in our age, don't we? We see someone in danger and we think, this is going to look great on Instagram. But actually, love would cause us to warn that person. And actually, Paul wants to warn the Corinthians, not so that they will be uh, afraid and, and scared and, and hunker down. No, but he wants to encourage them to keep on. He wants to encourage them to rely on God and his grace and his future grace. You know, the fact is God gives us grace we have received grace. We receive grace today. But we can also be confident in future grace that God will give us the grace that we need as we go on. You know, sometimes people have this mistaken idea of the Christian life that somehow God gives us all that we need like a big tank on our back and we just have to draw from it. No, 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 that's not true. God gives has given, he gives, and he will give. 
He keeps giving. We can be confident. We don't need to summon up what God gave us yesterday. But we can have a confidence that day by day, God will give us the grace that we need. He will give us the equipping that we need. And so my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, is to rely on the grace that God has given for you. To know that day by day, we can keep on. You know, if you go to um, uh, an AA group or something like that, often they, they will say, I just got to stay sober for today. And actually, there's some real truth in that. You know, we don't need to just be thinking about the tomorrow in it. We need to be thinking, God, I need your grace for today. I need your grace for today. Jesus says, tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. You know, day by day, keeping on expectant that God is enough. And one of Paul's concerns for the Corinthian church is that they're in danger, but that they don't realise it. In fact, far from realising that it's gone a bit pear-shaped, actually what they're thinking is they're doing so well. They say we have intellectualised our faith. We've gone beyond the, the, the basics that you gave us. We've developed elaborate theology. We've got great orators. And Paul writes to them and says, watch where you are. Somehow they thought they'd reached a superior level of maturity because they'd filled their heads with information. And Paul says to them, watch out. In one sense, they'd lost their early warning system. Now, we've just been doing some intern interviews with interns for next year. And whenever we recruit staff or interns, one of the things that we always ask, one of the questions we always ask is, how will we know if you're not doing well? What are the signs of all falling apart in your life? What are the early warning signs? And I want to ask that for two reasons. One, because I care for people and I want to help them if they get to that point. But also I want to see is, does this, is this person self-reflective enough to realise what their dangers are? And that's really important because if any of us think we have no faults or we have no triggers or we have no stuff that can set us off and make us go wrong, we're in a scary place. We need to be self-reflective enough to understand that we've all got things that we need to watch. And that's what Paul is doing here. He says you need to be careful. You know, drawing on the analogy from the previous part of the passage, you know, if you're going to run the race... You know, you have to make sure that you're not going to be disqualified. So he gives them a warning from history. A warning from history. He says, look at the example. And so I want us to look at the history of Israel. I want us to look at that example. Now, history is Important Now, if you're a uh, Chelsea or a Man City fan, you may not understand the concept of history. That's all the stuff that happened in the years before your energy billionaires tried to buy football and change it. But history is just the ongoing example of what has happened before. And Paul writes a really interesting thing. He says, these happened as an example to you. So in other words, there's something worth looking at and there's something 
worth listening to. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. And he begins to explain how God delivered his people out of captivity. God took them from Egypt where they were in slavery and God delivered them. He set them free. He brought massive, massive change. And yet it says this in verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. You know, a common experience doesn't lead to a common conclusion, does it? Have you ever seen some people go through difficulty and become stronger with it. Others go through difficulty and it wrecks them. Some people have uh, challenges in life and they manage to somehow keep on, whereas others become crushed by them. A common experience doesn't lead to a common outcome. It says there in verse 2, Uh, Verse 1, for I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. In other words, he shows the example of Israel, this idea of God's provision to them as a group of people. They were baptised into Moses, this idea of coming through water, of being saved and delivered from captivity, coming through the water as they were about to be destroyed by Pharaoh and his armies. God parted the sea. He made a way. They were delivered from captivity. They were rescued, set free, passed through water. They had the bread that they needed, the manna that was provided for them. In the desert, God met all of their needs. And he he kind of uses that picture of salvation, of baptism, of bread, of, of the idea of communion and sharing a common loaf, these common experiences but then he warns them that God was not pleased with all of them. They they had a common experience. They came out of Egypt. They were set free. They experienced the parting of the sea. They received daily bread. They drank from the rock. In the middle of the desert when they needed water, God provided water from for them. They experienced his healing. They experienced his provision. And yet of that entire generation, most of them didn't press into what God had for them. We know that, and historians will argue whether it was 600,000 or up to 2 million who came out of Egypt. But we do know that of that entire generation, only two of them entered the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. That's quite sobering, isn't it? All those people and only two of them entered in. They were all experienced a common experience. And I think we need to understand God saves us, he sets us free, he delivers us, but we need to keep on pressing in. 
So what are the mistakes they made? If he, you know, Paul is writing to these people and saying, look, these are the examples we've had. This is what they did wrong. And so we ought to look a little bit about that. You know, Paul makes the point that they drunk from the spiritual rock that was Christ. Now I've heard Christians say to me, oh yeah, but that was in the Old Testament. They didn't have grace or they didn't have Jesus. But Paul actually makes the point that the rock that they drunk from was Christ. God is at work in saving his people and throughout scripture that only happens through Jesus, through the eternal pre-existent Jesus. And Paul says it was Jesus providing. These things were a foreshadow, but it was God's grace being shown to his people. And yet they developed a hard heart. They got distracted. One of the common things that we see is that they kept looking back to where they'd come from. They looked back with nostalgia to the good old days, which were actually slavery and defeat and difficulty, but somehow they dressed it up differently. And that verse in verse 5, I believe, is one of the most stark uh, warning passages in the Bible. Verse 5, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. If you read the history of Israel, God basically waited for a generation to die out because they didn't have faith and obedience. So what were those things that got the people into trouble? Well, in verse 7 it says, Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So one of the dangers there is idolatry. He then says, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. If you look through and you know, maybe look through Numbers 11, 12, 13, 14, we see some of the examples of what went wrong. Numbers 11 verse 1 says, Now the people complained about their hardship in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Actually, it was just a moany attitude. It was a, a constant kind of whining. In Numbers 12, we see that that sense of, of, of dissatisfaction actually begins to manifest itself in racism. So in Numbers 12, 1, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he'd married a Cushite. One of the subtexts there is that they're complaining at Moses because he had a black wife. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that you get dissatisfied with God, you moan, and you begin to allow all kinds of junk into your heart. Numbers 14, 1 to 4. That night, all the members of their community raised their voice and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. We see elsewhere that when God provided manna, they were saying, but 
in, in Egypt, didn't we have onions and garlic and didn't we have spicy food? And you know, I kind of say amen to that, but no. God had given them what they needed for this stage of life and they were unhappy. They grumbled against God. You know, when you've got a problem with God, you'll always have a problem with people. And so much of the time we think so-and-so offended me. But actually, when we constantly have a problem with people, often our problem is initially with God. They didn't trust his provision. They said, we're going to die in the wilderness. And it's interesting because they say, our kids are going to be a prey. They're going to be perishing. But it's interesting that it was only their kids that got through, not them. So the very thing that they complained about God for, actually, they were wrong. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? You know, so much of the time, I have to, I find myself talking to Christians who kind of are still wanting to go back to Egypt. They're wanting to go back to their old lives. They're looking back and somehow they think that by serving God, they're missing out. If I serve God, I might miss out on the right relationship. If I serve God, I might miss out on the fun. If I serve God, this might not happen. And we've got it the wrong way around. And Paul wants them to see that actually following Jesus is worth more than anything else. If we go through the list there, it's idolatry. It's, you know, what he lists in there in Corinthians. It's wrong desires and appetites, chasing after the wrong things. It's sexual immorality. He makes a point. And if we look throughout the Old Testament, God constantly has to come to his people and warn them because of idolatry, worshipping false gods because of sexual immorality, using their bodies in ways outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman for life. And then lastly, for oppressing the poor. And God keeps coming back to his people and saying, you can't live that way. And Paul, I believe, wants the, um, wants the Corinthian church to see and to understand that. And he says, watch out. Don't worship idols. What does that look like? In our culture, very often the worship of the idolatry is the idolatry of self. We really are the me generation. We love ourselves, don't we? And, you know, we have to watch that, that we don't turn that into idolatry. You know, what's our, you know the, what's the ways that the Corinthians were tempted to synchronize truth with the religion around them was to be involved in, in temple worship to other gods. Maybe we're not tempted to go to the Hindu temple to worship. Maybe you are. But actually, what are the gods our culture worships? Sexual freedom. Are we worshiping at that same idol? You know, others on a different scale worship money. How does that find its root in church? Through things like the prosperity gospel, which overemphasize a truth that God blesses his people and places that as a point of greed. All these things are about taking something that God gives for good and placing too much emphasis on it. 
Brothers and sisters, I really want to warn you, look at the idols of our culture and don't play around with them. Don't play around with them. Don't test God. Don't grumble against God. You know, please hear my heart. It doesn't mean that we can't be honest with God and pour out our troubles to him. You know, if you look at the Psalms, you see that, don't you? Martin talked about David earlier. He pours out his heart and it's blunt and it's honest. And he's like, God, why have you allowed this? Why do you do this? And he says, you know, and even the whole thing of God, deal with my enemies, shatter their teeth, deal with them, even if it's ever so severely. He's honest with God. And we can be too. But watch your heart that you don't develop an attitude problem towards the almighty king of the universe, your creator. Don't grumble against God. How and in what ways do we do those things? Just take stock of your life. If you find yourself grumbling against God, deal with it. In some senses, the form of the temptation changes, but the roots are the same, aren't they? It's about idolatry, it's about immorality, it's about false gods and testing God. You know, it's not always about losing your salvation. You know, actually, I think part of this is, the idea is tied into this thing of running for a reward, the reward that we have in faithfulness in Christ. Don't miss out. Don't miss out. Even suffering is a privilege. We'll never get to do that in heaven. We'll never have to get to choose the low road to deny self in heaven. Now is when we get to do it. So also we need to watch out for being too confident in self. Second main point, watch out for being too confident in self. Paul wants to warn them not to casually take the issues around idol worship and think that they don't, it doesn't matter to them. Paul sees a danger to the church in their attitude to idol worship and participating in it. In verse 11, these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide also a way out so that you can endure it. So the issue with the Corinthians is both idolatry, but it's also pride. It's a false confidence in self. And he says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful so that you don't fall. I, when I read this, thought, I need to read this. I need to hear this. I need to digest this. I need to listen and I pray that you would too. Now, I'm, my hope is that you are standing firm. My hope is that you are standing strong. But let that be a confidence in Christ. You know, confidence in God. Confidence in his grace. Confidence in his provision. Confidence that he is enough. Not that I'm enough. 
Not that I can do it all, but that God is enough. It's interesting, this uh, passage shows us that all of us, when we think we stand firm, we need to watch out lest we fall. You know, we see that in the life of Peter, don't we? This confident man who says, Jesus, I'm never going to deny you. Jesus, and yet we read in, um, in Luke 11, says, I'm pray- Jesus says to him, I'm praying for you that your faith may not fail. It's really interesting, isn't it? Peter had this confidence and Jesus said, you're going to be tested. I'm praying that your faith won't fail. Do you know, I was so encouraged by that. Jesus prays for his people that they won't fail. You know, there are some people in this church who I really trust their faithfulness in prayer. And if I've got a need, I'll text them and say, can you pray for me for this? Why? Because I trust that they faithfully pray. If you feel tempted, no, Jesus is praying for you. Isn't that incredible? Like it's great to have friends that will pray for us, but Jesus prays for his people. And he prayed for Simon Peter that I pray that your faith may not fail. You know, none of us are beyond temptation. This, this passage teaches us two things around that. None of us are beyond temptation. We never get to that place where we are beyond temptation, where nothing affects us. If that's what your hope is, that Christian maturity means that you're not going to get tempted anymore, actually, I'm sorry, you, you've got the wrong goal. You're going to be disappointed. We will all face trials and temptations and difficulties. But also, the second part of that, none of us have the excuse for being overwhelmed by temptation. Because God will not let you tempted, be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Isn't that encouraging? None of us are immune from temptation, but none of us have an excuse for being overwhelmed with it. Jesus is praying that you stand faithfully. So how do we respond? Well, verse 14 makes it clear. Therefore, flee from idolatry. Isn't that great? Flee from idolatry. Flee. Run. Watch my smoke. I'm gone. Don't sit around and play around with it. Don't see how close to the edge we c- you can get. Deal with it. You know, when I was in Nepal, uh, I was doing an inspection trip on some work AOG had done out there, and there are these crazy roads with big drops underneath. Now, I was not, I have to confess, encouraging the driver to see how close to the edge we could get. In fact, I was saying to the guy, dude, other side of the road, others, and we were all kind of, why? Because you know what's down there. And as Christians, we're not called to see how close to the edge we can get and just stay right. No, no, flee from what is wrong. So how do we do that? Just some really practical things very quickly. Put some strategies in place when you are strong to help you when you're feeling weak. So if you know that you are tempted in a certain area, when you're doing well in it, Put some things in place to help you when you're going to do when you're going to be tempted. You know, I used to counsel a guy who um, 
had an addiction with gambling. And what I would say to him is just write on a piece of paper how you feel when you act out on that. And he'd say, I feel, I feel disappointed, I feel broken, I feel hurt, I feel I've let myself down, I've let my family down, I'm going to be short on the groceries money. And he'd write that down. i say, then also write things, you know, how do you feel when you overcome that temptation? And, you know, you write that down. I said, keep that in your wallet. And when you're tempted, just take it out. Say, this is how I'm going to feel if I do this. This is how I'm going to feel if I do that. These, you know, put on the list there. Here are three people who've given me permission to call them day or night if I'm tempted to give in. Why? And that's putting stuff in place when you're strong for when you're feeling weak. Know what your weaknesses are. Know what your weaknesses are. If you don't know the areas of temptation in your life, guys, you've got a problem. We need to know what our weaknesses are and be open with others. If not, I tell you, we, we, how can you fight what you don't even know? And it's really important. Know what your weaknesses are. Know how to fight them. Find the promises in the Word of God that you can rely on. Ultimately, it's not self-will, it's God's grace that's going to enable me to get through it. So what do I do? I find the promises of God that relate to what I know, that what my weaknesses are, what my temptations are. I find the promises of God and I choose to fill my mind with them but also, I know that God gives me his grace as I approach his word in faith. Open your life up to the light. Open your life up to the light. Be open. Tell someone else what it is you struggle with. Now, don't tell someone who gossips, because we'd all be interested to hear, but it's probably not useful. But find someone who you trust, who knows how to keep confidences, and just open up. You know, the old, you know, who wants to be a millionaire thing? Phone a friend. You're not alone. Cultivate relationships of honesty. It's one of the reasons, you know, AA and NA groups and stuff work is because people are opening up. You're created for intimacy. You're created to know and be known. You know, it's kind of interesting when you think about that dynamic. You can go to a group and even if you don't say anything, hear somebody else's story and how they deal with it, and it helps you. Why? Because you're created for intimacy. And actually, so much of what we do when we act out wrongly is because of a lack of intimacy in our lives. Cultivate friendships where we can open up, rely on God's grace. And then lastly, this passage, he just talks about using your freedom wisely. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please myself, please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so they may be saved. Now again, Pete, this, the end of this passage talks a lot more about the situation of food that's been offered to idols. And I encourage you to listen to Pete's sermon from a couple of weeks ago. But the principle that he comes back to here is use the freedom that you have as a Christian wisely. Even if something is okay for you, 
What's the effect that it has on others? So he uses the idea that, you know, you're in someone's house, eat what you're given. But if they specifically tell you this is about a cult and ritual worship, then for their sake, don't eat. Because they need to know that you've been set free and you're not going back to it. Why? Because it's about your witness. The point here is that it's for the good of many so they may be saved. In whatever way God has set you free, don't go back to it. Don't go back to it. There ought to be a before and after about our lives. If God has set you free, don't go back to it. Don't try to mix up serving Jesus with serving anything else. And that comes across, again, a really strong verse here in verse 20, in 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Now, I'll be straight with you because I always will. When we actively give ourselves in worship to another God or to false religion, we're worshiping demons. Now, I know some people tend to be sentimental. You know, all roads lead to God or, or it's the God of that. No, but do you know what? If you worship a God who is not the God of the Bible, essentially you end up worshiping demons. And that's a really hard thing to say. It's a hard thing to hear. I'm aware of that. But when God sets you free, you can't mix up Christianity with something else. I can't have my buffet of religions. I take this from Jesus. And, you know, the Bhagavad Gita says this. And, you know, I take this principle from the Quran. No, no, we worship Jesus. Don't try to mix him with anything else. Particularly, never ever involve yourself in the occult. I spent so much time in my life helping people who worshipped basically the demonic through the occult, and it is always destructing, destructive. And I'd encourage you, if that's the case, think about what you entertain yourself and particularly entertain your kids with. If you're raising your kids on a diet of movies and games that glorify the occult, you need to be really careful. You're sowing seeds into their life. You know, think about what are... Paul wants to speak to them about the areas where idol worship that is common in the culture finds its way into the lives of Christians. I would personally... It's a personal view, but I would personally ask you to really think about some of the stuff around meditation and mindfulness. There are some things in there that come out of transcendental meditation and I believe that they are some of the ways that we people end up with a synchronistic faith. Now I'm very happy to talk to you afterwards but I just think that's a way that Christians often end up in a snare. The big point is how does my life speak about Christ? How does it point people to Jesus? Don't cause anyone to stumble. If I've got freedom as a Christian, I need to use it to bring glory to Jesus. What does my life look like like that? What does it mean to live for his glory? Paul paints this picture of Egypt and their mistakes because he doesn't want them to repeat them. 
I want to encourage you, look at the mistakes that you've made before, learn from them. Look at the mistakes of the people of God in scripture and learn from them. Look at the mistakes in our culture. Look at the mistakes. Have openness with others. Let's not go back to what God has delivered us from. I'm going to invite the band just to come. I just want to create just a moment of quiet, a moment just to sit, a moment to reflect, a moment to ask God to speak to each of our hearts, just in this moment of silence. What's the bit from today's sermon that speaks to you? What's the bit that God would have you? Where are you like that driver just veering towards the edge? Maybe for some of us, the question is a more fundamental. What are the dangers in my life? What are the ways that I look back and I see that I constantly mess up? Who have I talked to about that? What am I putting into place? Holy Spirit, we just want to come and to invite you just in this moment of silence, Lord, to speak into our hearts. Lord, we want to live our lives to bring glory to Jesus. And we pray that you'd speak to each one of us now. In Jesus' name. So just take a few moments now. And